Welcome back to Rethinking Politics, episode 38. With recent events surrounding Russia, China, U.S. sanctioning both, sanctions such a strong word that implies so much and yet often means so little, <laughs> we're going to talk foreign policy. Foreign policy in the sense, in the, in the broadest sense, right? We're going to get a lay of the land. We're going to look around the world. We're going to point out places that are worth watching, things that could happen in the future. We're going to cover, of course, what's happened recently. And we're going to analyze some of the principles we think that are involved in a good foreign policy and try and get at kind of a basic political question, right? What, what should foreign policy be? And the practical question, what is our foreign policy? Apparently, we have one. People talk about foreign policy, right? We talk about Biden's foreign policy versus Donald Trump's for foreign policy versus President Obama's uh, foreign policy. And the implication is that there is some kind of plan, some kind of outlook on the world that is going to lead them to behave in certain predictable ways that will have predictable effects. There are principles that lead to actions, that lead to effects, and that there's some linear connection between all of these. <laughs> In theory, right? This is this is the this is the basic assumption of the world. You have certainly people act because with with purpose, right? You you go to the fridge to get something, or maybe even it's out of habit, and that's its own purpose. And wow, damn, we're talking about foreign policy, and you really are going to the basics. We're going to the basics. We're starting with the fridge. (laughs) So if you ever want to figure out how to understand foreign policy, step one: What do you do when you go to get something from the fridge? (laughs) Once you've figured that out, everything else will everything fall into place. Everything else falls into place. That's, that's at least half true. Certainly a lot of our <laughs> philosophy is built on the axiom that, that humans act purposefully. And that, yes. that your actions are driven by a purpose. But <laughs> back to what is more relevant. Biden has today, on the day that we're making this, announced sanctions against Russia based on Russia's interference in our elections and certain hacks that they have done, which we have now attributed to them. One of which is, is called solar wind. As if I say that as if it would mean something to you. It didn't mean anything to me. Ah. It still doesn't mean anything to me. I'm sure it was one of the hacks I read about at some point, but I don't know the details. And, but the point is, Biden is now acting against Russia, as he claimed he would, right? He thought Trump was weak against Russia. He thought Trump's foreign policy was he was buddy-buddy with Russia, and Russia was working with him was the claim. Uh, the evidence of that is scarce, to say the least. And now he's acting against them, fulfilling campaign promises. And what has he actually done? Well, he sanctioned them. What does that mean? Well, it could mean anything. A sanction is any kind of economic consequence against a country based on, on some deemed wrong, right? They've, they've done something, we're going to sanction them. We're going to do something that affects them economically. Now, we sanctioned China a couple weeks ago in escalating series of back and forth sanctions that ultimately came down to us freezing the assets of a few individuals in the Chinese government. Now, a sanction could be much more than that. A sanction could be, we are not trading with you. And we are forbidding all of our allies to trade with you. It could, be, it could be effectively an entire shutdown of trade at a level that would have massive consequences the world over. Or it could be what we're doing now, which is slaps on the wrist. Which is, which is much, much smaller. Yeah. This is, we were discussing it before this, and I, I described this to Brad as, this is the equivalent of us flicking them in the air for being mean to us. <laughs> 
Well, and it's interesting to note, Dan, that that this is not the first time we've sanctioned Russia. In fact, during Trump's presidency, the U.S. has sanctioned Russia. We've reached an age today where sanctioning has become passe because we do it so regularly. And part of the reason I think we do is because it carries more weight in terms of the words than in what's actually happening. And so it's a very effective political tool, you know, because politics is all about what you see. It's all about the show of what's going on. And so being able to sanction a country that's doing something people don't like gains you a lot of political capital, especially when you're able to convince the country you're sanctioning that the sanctions don't mean anything. You know, if they understand it's business as usual, then really everyone wins in terms of politi- in terms of political incentives. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Your President Biden is able to say, I am being tough on Russia. Russia's able to say, nothing is happening because he's actually too afraid of us. And the people of both countries will believe it. And you'll notice Biden sanctions Russia. Biden is explicit that he's condemning Russia. And then the next thing he does is announce that it's time for de-escalation. He did sanction Russia, but he is not going to do anything else and expects Russia not to do anything else. In other words, what Biden wants with Russia is business as usual. If what Russia did truly was awful and truly needs to be needs to be stopped, then you'd assume there would be escalation. You know, there would be more attempts to change what Russia is doing, but instead the fact that he immediately de-escalates is just a slap on the wrist for political reasons. He's not really trying to change what Russia is doing in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, there have been no demands and no concessions. A slap on the wrist even seems too strong. That's why I used a flick on the air. Like a slap on the wrist is an aggressive action. A flick on the air is far more playful. And we've never had an episode about foreign policy, but we've mentioned foreign policy before, especially in terms of of the election last year. And we've mentioned the fact that foreign policy is nebulous in terms of party lines. It used to be that there were some clear-cut lines about what the parties at least said they believed in terms of foreign policy. And even that has become muddy. And so what it actually means in their actions is is anyone's guess. The differences between the parties are nebulous. Biden says, I'm strong on Russia and Trump is is weak on Russia. But what does this strength actually look like? Nothing substantial. It's odd. It's really odd, Dan. It I mean, is it's, it's part of the reason I think we haven't done a foreign policy episode in the past almost a year now that we've been recording podcasts, not because foreign policy is so complicated, but because the way you the U.S. handles foreign policy is so complicated and messy. But before we go too far down this rabbit hole, I want to talk about, on a broader sense, what our foreign policy should actually look like. What do you believe that foreign policy should be? You know, so often we talk about individual instances, but what does good foreign policy for the United States actually look like? But something that I think a lot of people struggle with coming with clear principles of when the U.S. government should get involved in the business of other countries. I think when you ask people, they say, oh, yeah, World War I and World War II, it was good that we got involved, but 
the Vietnam War and the war in Iraq, it was bad that we got involved. And of course, not everyone will agree on it, but that's just an example of one person saying this is good and this is bad. And then there's lots of areas where they're honestly not sure. The Korean War. There's so many examples. You can go back and look at obscure wars. You know, what about the American-Mexican War? What about the uh, Spanish-American War back at the turn of the century? What about our involvement in Afghanistan? You know, we're finally pulling troops out of Afghanistan after so, so many years. The longest you know, war, technically, depending on how you how you look doesn't, at it. It doesn't you know feel I mean? like a war, but yes, it is technically the longest war. And it all becomes a bit more complicated in saying what is right and what is wrong. So, Dan, I'm going to ask you, what does a just foreign policy look like? I actually like, uh, there's a conception called just war theory that's pretty good and pretty well known in circles where where this kind of thing is discussed. But I'm going to start simpler than that. I'm going to start more basic because I think is if you start small, it's much easier to see the big picture. You start with individuals and you start with clear principles. And we've discussed self-defense, and I think that's the proper place to start. That If someone is threatening you, your life, your property, which is what you use to live your life, it's an extension of your life in a lot of ways. You know, if someone's taking all your food or takes your car so you can't get to work and takes your... You know, all of these things hinder your life and your liberty similarly. Your, your life, your liberty, and your property all mingle together into one whole that is your life. And to hinder any one of these is to cause harm to you. And if someone is causing harm, I think your ability to resist makes perfect sense. No one is above another. And as such, anyone who tries to rule over you by taking your stuff, your life, your, your liberty is in the wrong. And this is a principle that we've brought up again and again, especially in reference to police authority being an extension of the right to self-defense. You know, that really this principle of your right to life and your ability to protect it is fundamental to what we believe. Yes, in this idea that no one is above you, and thus no one gets to just dictate your life and take your stuff and control these things for you. And so with that in mind... If someone tries to kill you, clearly you can stop them. And we've discussed emergency situations a little bit too. You want to respond to violence with a proportional amount of violence. But in the moment, you don't know what they're going to do if they gain power with you. And so you respond with an effective violence. The violence that you respond with has to be effective. Yeah, if someone breaks into your house in the middle of the night... It could be that their only intention is to raid your refrigerator, steal some food, and then leave. But you have no way of knowing that. You know what I mean? You have no way of determining what level of threat they are until it's too late. You know, if they break into your house with a gun, the really the only reasonable assumption is that there's a good chance that they're going to kill you or your family. And that they're going to take everything you have, everything that's valuable. Yes. Everything that matters to you. Which is why a proportional response is to force them to leave by whatever means is necessary in that situation. Yes, that does mean if all they wanted was some food and they're really on, they're tripped out on something or they're super drunk and confused and they go and they raid your fridge, you may have responded well above what is necessary to get somebody who's just confused out of your house. But it was reasonable. It was reasonable what you did because you don't know. <laughs> you don't know what's mm -hmm. going to happen. So if you are under some kind of attack, someone has come into your house, someone is uh, 
threatened you or your family, to respond with violence is justified. And I think that that concept of self-defense, as it's often called, is the foundation of any foreign policy. And it must be. Now, I am not limited to defending myself. If Brad is being attacked, I have as much right to stop that person as I have to stop someone attacking me. And so if I can defend myself, and I can defend Brad, if someone's harming Brad, then at that point, you have a concept of individual defense. In a second example, we'll try and broaden this out a little bit. And this actually happens. You can read about this in uh, The Virginian is the book that I'm thinking of for this particular example. This is out in the, the West on the frontier in America, The Age of the Cowboys. If you're familiar with The Virginian, it's a classic book. In some ways, it's the, it's the first classic cowboy novel. There are others that predate it, but... I was going to shout out a yeehaw for you or a, <laughs> a you know, a a holler or a whoop, but I, I changed my mind. <laughs> you just didn't have it in you. That's You've been too urbanized, Brad. There's very little cowboy in me. I know some cowboys I could invite them on to, to do it for me, but I couldn't pull it off. Well, that we'll have to schedule that for next time because I think that is essential. I think we're really missing out by not having a good <laughs> yeehaw in here at this particular moment. <laughs> at this junction. At this junction. Thus exemplifying our city boy personalities. <laughs> I have practiced one, but now with this buildup, I feel too uh, uh, too shy. You've practiced one. I, I you sit in front of the mirror and and practice yeehawing just in case it ever I don't, comes up. In I don't need to look at myself to make a sound. Actually, I have become so adept with my voice, Brad, that watching myself in the mirror doesn't improve. Is unnecessary my ability to speak. But, but uh, I feel but like yes. you're dodging the question here. Yes, you've you've sat there and you've practiced. Well, I have made the sound, been disappointed, and made it again several times until it sounded right. It. Would yeah, I call that's that practicing it? Yes, that's practice. But when you say, "Did you practice it?" It makes me think that, like, I scheduled time on a regular basis. <laughs> have you considered getting a trainer? <laughs> Maybe taking some lessons. Well, I did reflect. I mean, if we're gonna do this, if we're gonna do this, let's do it right. I did reflect for a time on what other people sound like when I thought that's proper. <laughs> but but I don't so you I didn't, did some study. I know. You did some study before before you practiced. <laughs> no, I just after studying it, after practicing, he's finally here. <laughs> he's ready to go. I had just heard people, the one and only as I said, I live in Texas. I'm from Idaho. I have heard people make these noises well. No study <laughs> was noises. necessary. I was just drawing on life experience. And now I feel obligated to do it. So here we go. Yeah. Now there's no way that sounds good in the in the microphone. I'm sure that I just broke all the levels, and whatever sound I just made may or may not remain. So if you're listening to this and you go, "No sound was made," it's because it's been edited out as unbearable. It was so high pitched. I didn't expect. Well, that's the idea. That. They go into a falsetto. In the West, you would have occasions where a group of people would organize, or even just one individual, would become enough of a threat. And they would, they would do things, particularly stealing horse, horses and cattle. Right? This is the classic cowboys watch over the cows. <laughs> there you go. The kind of things you can learn from our podcast. He really has studied. <laughs> I'm clearly an expert here. If you steal people's horses and cows... You are not just stealing 
their pens and pencils. No, you're stealing their livelihood. It is their very livelihood, and depending on the circumstances in which you steal horses, you may have killed them directly, right? You may have just put them in a situation where they do not get to where they need to go and, or get away from where they... Yeah, their, their ability to survive is actually in, in jeopardy. So this is a huge problem, and they don't have prisons. They, don't have, they didn't have the means to deal with these people on a long-term basis, and because of the scope of the threat, what they would do is they would execute people. Now, you may or may not agree with, with, with that judgment, but that's, that's how they dealt with it. Now, if you get a group of people going around to different homes that are basically on the frontier, right? There's no organized government or anything. How do you stop them, especially if there are enough of them that you yourself or you and your family and the people that you that work on your land yeah, could not, not stop them? them. Yeah. At that point, you need more people. And so what you do is you round up a posse. Oh, this yeah. Is, this is what this word means. <laughs> it is not merely a term for friends. <laughs> you get a group of people, and maybe you pay some of them. Maybe they just do it out of the good-hearted people who... And normally, it, it's something more than that. It's their understanding that the community cannot survive as long as these bandits exist. You know what I mean? Yes. That, yeah. that the main reason posses were formed, it was volunteers who weren't being paid... And who weren't doing it out of charity, but were doing it because if their community was to survive, the bandits had to be stopped. Whether or not they had directly been targeted yet by the yes. bandits, they understood that it was in their best interest to stop it from happening. And so the community basically as a whole would understand the threat and those who were able would form together to create that posse to then go deal with that threat. Right. And this is often a long endeavor. To do this, these people are not sitting around at their house next door. Right? These people are probably don't even live in the area, and they're camping somewhere. And so to do this, you have to track them down. And this may take an extended period of time. And it is an immense sacrifice to do this, which is why this is a last resort in a lot of cases, right? This is why, this is why if you could solve the problem in an easier way, you would. And what they do is they track this down. And if they're going to invest that kind of time, it needs to have some kind of permanent resolution. And they would, if they captured these people, they would hang them. Again, setting aside the question of whether the punishment fits the crime, uh, you may or may not agree with that. Obviously, today we have other means open to us and that, that changes things yeah, a little bit. Yeah, other avenues and it absolutely does. But are they justified in gathering a group of people to go and deal with this problem? Yes. For the same reason an individual is justified when they're under attack. Now, you could expand this out to a larger group. You get an entire city of people or area of people, and there are invaders of some kind who are going to come through. They're going to ransack the area. They're going to take property. They're going to kill the men. They're going to take the women and children or whatever it may be, right? The details aren't that important. They're going to come and they're going to do something that harms this group. Is the group justified in defending? themselves, their wives, their children, property, etc. Of course they are. And here we have a clear basis for a just war that essentially everybody but a pacifist would agree with, which is the vast, I think you could get 99.9% .9 agreement or more on this, mm -hmm. on this principle. And I think this is a universal, true principle that this is, this is a basis for war. And a basis for war is critical if you want a basis for foreign policy. Mm -hmm. It's the same problem we run into when we're discussing government. When is it okay to be violent? When is violence justified? It's justified in self-defense. 
it's definitely a principle that that we use when we look back at wars that we have been involved in is is what is the justification and who are we defending and that definitely influences what we feel is just and what we feel isn't just a great example of that is the war of 1812 which in practice was actually a pretty muddy war it had to do with great britain intruding on our rights out on the open ocean our interactions with them, their Navy, our ships, and it was a little bit muddy. But when Britain put troops on U.S. soil, it became a lot less muddy. And it was very easy for the American people to rise up in defense of America and very easy to justify. And it became very clear all of a sudden. You know, when we invaded Canada during that war, it became a lot less clear. And it's something you can see throughout history. When you are defending your land and your people, it is very easy to justify. As soon as it becomes something else, you better have a darn good reason for it. Right, and I would say the first immediate apparent reason where you would be justified is to defend other people. Absolutely. You get, you and get someone else being attacked, and you go and you help them. And that's the argument that the U.S. has used time and time again, is that we are defending others. It's not always popular, but the idea is we are the world's policemen. We are blessed with prosperity. We are blessed with this incredible military. And so we're going to use it to defend others' lives, which on paper sounds pretty good, right? On <laughs> yes. paper, on paper, in terms of a just war theory, in terms of having a right to defend others, there is some legitimacy to that argument. Yeah, I agree with it completely. I think, I think, would we be morally justified in being the world's policeman? Yes. I do think the answer to that is yes. Should we? be the world's policeman? I think the answer is at best a maybe. And have we been the world's policeman? The answer is a hard no. The answer is a no. Mm -hmm. A great example of that, people always talk about World War II. What's become more popular lately to talk about, which has been fantastic for me because I've been talking about it since I was 12, is the fact that World War II in many ways came about because of World War I. More specifically, it came about because the United States got involved in World War I, not in order to defend any people or country, but to support our allies in one of the muddiest wars there is, one of the, the most pointless wars we've had in the last couple hundred years. On a more specific occurrence, would we be morally justified in assassinating someone who is doing terrible things. Yes. I think, I think yes, you'd be morally justified. Is it prudent is another question. You can do something that would be morally just that then makes things worse. <laughs> Ideally, you're in a situation where you can follow through with justice at every level. You can try and uphold a standard of justice. And you won't be able to do it perfectly in any, in any circumstance. But I, ideally, you have some standard and you seek to meet it at every level. But let's say you don't have power. This is a foreign country. They're doing their own thing. And you have a seriously corrupt leader at the top. And you couldn't go in there and impose a just system. But you could assassinate the leader. Would you be morally justified in killing someone who is doing 
real evil, you know, someone like Saddam Hussein, who's torturing people and doing and doing those kind of things? I think the answer is yes. Should you? It depends. To take it back to the fundamental principles behind it, you know, an individual has the right to self-defense. We also have the right to defend others. As soon as you start defending the rights of others, it becomes a bit muddier. I defend my household. That's easy. The household next door, the husband may or may not be abusing his wife. I'm not 100% sure. I I end up finding out evidence that he is to some degree. I'm not sure exactly what the degree is, but he is abusing his wife. Do I have the right to defend her? Absolutely. If I break into that house in the middle of the night, grab a shotgun, and shoot the head off of that husband, have I done what's morally just in a theoretical sense? At first it seems yes, but now all of a sudden it doesn't seem so much anymore <laughs> because the the person I've killed is not only her abuser, but also her husband. You know, talk to people about domestic abuse, and it's not nearly as simple. It's not nearly as simple. They have three kids, and those three kids, their dad is now dead, murdered in the nighttime. Yeah, and would we say that execution is proportionate to that crime? Well, you're definitely justified in stopping a threat in the moment and Yeah, exactly. It it just becomes it just becomes messier. And the same is true in war. The same is true in international relations. Let's put it that way. A great example of something that we 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 interfere with very often is governments that we think are unjust for whatever reason. But what is the solution? Because if you overthrow that government, you have to overthrow that government by killing the soldiers. But those soldiers, who are they? Are they that government? Or are they rather the citizens of that country who have been coerced into the military in order to uphold that government? Many despotic countries, their hold over the country is so strong that you'd have to fight a bloody war to depose that despot. And at that point, are those people better off? The widows of all the men you'd have to kill in order to overthrow that despot, and they wouldn't feel that way. Right. You know what I mean? You ask them about the the cities that have been destroyed, and they wouldn't feel that way. You can imagine the situation where those soldiers, they're soldiers that, as you were saying, do not want to be doing this, don't really have a choice. And they are just sitting there at home, and they're fine. They may have to do things they don't like occasionally, but you go and you attack to bring down that dictator. And suddenly, you have to fight these people. Whereas, if they invade your country, at that point, they are the aggressor. Yes, they don't want to be doing it, per se. And maybe they feel like they have to. But at that point, you're not just justified morally in defending it. You also have the impending threat. And you have to neutralize that threat. Mm-hmm. Whereas, that impending threat isn't there when they're just sitting at home. You've created the threat by invading their country, which adds a another element to it. It it makes it much harder when you're the aggressor to justify it. And as Brad was saying, it just becomes much messier. And so there are times where you can defend a country against another country, and that does make it a little less messy. In terms of defending a country from itself, it's almost impossible to do it in a just way. It's almost impossible to come in and say, we're going to protect you from this government 
without causing more harm than good. And that's something that we can see time and time again. Look at the Middle East where we occupy these countries for long periods of times in order to protect the people. And time after time after time, the people tell us through their actions that they do not want us there. You know what I mean? That we are the oppressors, that we are the aggressors. And the fact that they're willing to kill us or to risk their own lives to get us out is evidence of the fact that that there may not be as much justice in what we're doing as we thought. And you inevitably get collateral damage. The bigger the operation, the larger the scale of it, the more innocent people suffer in the process. People who had nothing to do with it, you know. I wouldn't say that the blood is entirely on the hands of the aggressor in those cases. A good example is Iraq, right? We go in there, there are innocent people who are suffering immensely because of the war who wouldn't have suffered otherwise. Mm -hmm. But there are also people that we're helping who would have suffered under Saddam Hussein, who now won't. And certainly some of the responsibility for the invasion should fall on Saddam Hussein, who is doing unjust things and who is, you know, he's doing terrible things. And so if there is collateral damage, certainly some of the blood should be on, at least some of it, should fall on his hands, rightfully so. And I'm not endorsing Iraq or, or pushing against it. In fact, I think it was, overall, I think it's a bad decision, just as an example of this point. But, but that, once again, goes back to, to whether or not you need to do it. If someone breaks into your home, mm -hmm. even if it's just to steal from the fridge, your pressing need to do something is there. If you think someone is doing something unjust in, an, in their own home, it becomes much more difficult for you to justify your actions. You have to be much more precise. The standard is higher. You have to be much more precise. Exactly. The standard is higher. Absolutely. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. And, and with that higher standard, I've, thought, I've often thought that the best way to solve it. So a good example is right now in China. It, it's funny that what's making news is these, these minor sanctions, right? There were two, not one, but two articles on CNN today on this subject. Yet... In China, there's the minority Muslim group that's being oppressed. And by being oppressed, we mean slavery and worse. <laughs> yeah, like we're legitimate, hardcore persecution. Right. Oppression is a word that applies to so many things now that it doesn't seem harsh enough to describe what they're going through. They are being treated as subhuman. And would we be justified in defending them morally? Absolutely. Absolutely. No one should do those things to another human being. But... Would we be justified in launching a full-scale invasion of China tomorrow? Right. I think a more practical solution to this kind of problem is to try and get them out. Here's a great example of, of that, Dan. World War II, the moral justification for World War II is twofold. Number one, the Nazis were exterminating Jews and other minorities within their own borders, which was absolutely morally unjust, right? It's Yes. Like you said, it's, it's not debatable. Absolutely, there's a moral justification in defending those people. And then the other part is that Japan attacked the United States, and so we had a right to self-defense. And, and those, those two both make a lot of sense. What doesn't make sense is the fact that when the Jews were being persecuted early on, the United States refused to allow them refuge in the United States, even though we could have. Imagine how differently things would have gone if we had allowed refugees to come to the United States to escape that in large numbers. If we had done something to try and 
allow them an opportunity to to go somewhere else. You know what I mean? To go here. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. something that that time and time again we could do in order to change things. Another great example of that is the Civil War, right? The Civil War is historically talked about as being about slavery. And yet before the Civil War, we had longstanding laws that if a slave escaped from the South and made it into the North, the North was going to return the slave. We were actively allowing them to oppress a people without doing something about it. There's more that can be done that's much more effective without launching a full-scale invasion. And I'm going to take it back to domestic abuse one more time because when you talk about that situation – so gray. <laughs> with that husband abusing the wife, the answer is not to go into that house and shoot the husband, which you'll see in, in the modern world. That's not the solution. The solution is to provide opportunities for – the the person who's being abused in that situation to leave that situation, to provide them refuge somewhere else where if that's what they want, they have that opportunity and try and make that opportunity as easy as possible for them. I think this this connects so well to immigration because honestly, in most of these complicated situations where one group is really being oppressed, the Jews in, in Germany the this muslim minority in china there are other groups that are oppressed in china it's not just yes. it's yes. not just well, the muslims it's just right now that's the group that's that's being oppressed the most and so they have a little bit more of the light of day hong kong hong kong for some reason got i, well, I don't know if they got more or less attention depending on which news news group you're looking at but hong kong has virtually been silenced at this point hong kong is small enough we could have absorbed the entire population anyone who wanted to come One of the nice things about this idea of extraction, of taking the people out that are being oppressed, is that you can do this in spite of your country's opinions. You don't need the entire might of the U.S. military to extract the people who want to extract. Mm -hmm. There are private military forces that can and do do that. And they do a darn good job. The main, yeah, the main obstacle with getting people who are being persecuted out of a country is not the physical process of getting them out. It's the fact that once they're out, where do they go? Which yes. country will allow them refuge yes. status? And and that's the obstacle. It's the diplomatic hurdle. One of Biden's campaign promises was that he was going to undo the uh, refugee cap that. Trump put in place was like 15,000 or something. I believe it was 15,000. And he was going to undo it and bring it back up to around 60,000. A few days ago, uh, the White House announced that they would not be raising the cap for, for a number of reasons until a while longer. And there was huge backlash because it was such a simple and concise promise that he made and that he was backing out of. And because of the huge backlash, he reconsidered and said, well, we might raise the cap. We'll see. And all of this happened in a period of, of a day or two, right? And it was just so interesting to me because it's so stupid that our immigration policy, our fear of, of these immigrants coming in and destroying the country, have time and time again historically stopped us from protecting millions upon millions of people who were then persecuted, enslaved, even killed time and time again that we could have prevented but chose not to for a number of reasons, for a number of reasons. But instead, we're willing to go and we're willing to throw troops into countries time and time again with 
casualties on both sides, usually with with civilian casualties on top of it. You know, you talk about the Iraq War. The Iraq War started with the shock and awe campaign, which was a bombing campaign. The thing about bombs is they kill people who are not soldiers. They are indiscriminate in the worst ways. You can't protect and oppressed people in a country by bombing them. Go back to, to the Vietnam War where we're supposed to be protecting South Vietnam, and yet the number of North Vietnamese citizens that we murdered during that war is astronomical. You know what I mean? You look at these wars time and time again, and the, the sheer destruction that we've caused around the world, and the sheer cost that it's been for the United States and billions upon billions upon billions of dollars that we've been just fine spending, but we won't allow refugees. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't. It would be a fraction of the cost. You look at like, like Osama bin Laden, the guy who masterminded 9-11, who then in, in some ways, you know, is the proximate cause of the war in Afghanistan and Iraq. Osama bin Laden was inspired to hit the United States by indiscriminate bombing. He lost friends and family to U.S. bombs aimed at other people and was like, Mm -hmm. this is unacceptable, and wanted to retaliate. Obviously, I'm not endorsing 9-11 as some kind of justified violence. (laughs) It wasn't. No, but you're talking about the – but you're talking about the fact that that blowback is a real thing. Right, the CIA calls this blowback. That when we engage in any kind of military operation outside of the United States, it's going to kill people. And the friends and family of the people we kill are not going to be happy about it, and they're going to remember. The CIA, they organized a coup in Iran in 1953, almost 70 years ago. So people talk about our involvement in the Middle East. We've been involved in the Middle East since the 50s. You know, that has <laughs> so that has ago. a far-reaching effect. Yeah, we don't remember that. We, no one in America knows about that. With, with rare exceptions, right? You have, to be, you have to be reading history and looking into this stuff to be like, wait, we did a coup in Iran? Maybe, maybe while we forgot, maybe they remember. Maybe Iran remembers. Maybe Iran remembers. Maybe Iran's efforts to get nuclear weapons as a deterrent to keep us out of their business was based on something we did to them. People talk about how it makes no sense for Iran to have nuclear weapons. And I'm like, are you kidding me? If I were if, if I, I were, were Iran, Iran, that would be my number one priority. If I were the president of Iran, I would be like, we need nukes and we need them now because the U.S. has time and time again gone involved in the internal political affairs of Iran. Yes. I mean, for the past 70 years – we have wanted to control what Iran does and does not do. And nukes are one of the few ways you can stop. You can deter it at least. The yeah, US you can from you doing can, that. You can yeah, make exactly. it much more hard. Yeah, nuclear deterrents are an interesting an interesting aspect of this in that whatever you think about nuclear weapons and things like disarmament, you should be able to get into the head of, of people like the Iranians and go, why would we want this? Oh, it's obvious. <laughs> we if we get nuclear weapons, we get respect. And if we get respect we can determine our own affairs in ways that we can't until we get nuclear weapons. And in that way, it is an effective deterrent. And if you want to get an example of that, North Korea. The only reason North Korea has not been wiped off the map or corrected or something is because they have nuclear weapons. It is because they have nuclear weapons. If they didn't have nuclear weapons, they would not exist at this point. Something would have happened a long time ago. Absolutely. And that's solid evidence for the reason why countries... Yeah, if you want to be an independent nation... You need nuclear weapons. 
because these countries that don't have that kind of power are treated like pawns. You know, you look at South America, you look at the Middle East, and time and time again, large foreign powers, including the United States, have interfered. We're talking assassinations, we're talking military coups, we're talking you name it. And these are just the ones that are that are public knowledge. You know, the, the number of, of coups and assassinations and assassination attempts that are public knowledge is astronomical. <laughs> it is. We're not we're not even delving into things that can't be confirmed. Like all of these are admitted open plot, yeah, public admitted record. Things, things that have point. happened. Yeah. Yeah. We wanted to give a kind of lay of the land as we're discussing this, and we are somewhat incidentally. We, we've mentioned Iraq and Afghanistan and Iran a little bit. Uh, we've mentioned Russia and our relationship with Russia, which is a, a strange one that is, I was going to say it's a continuation of the Cold War, but it seems to be that in posturing only. We don't actually yeah. do much in terms them. of how we actually interact with, with Russia. There's nothing left from the Cold War. They, they might as well be an yes. ally. Uh, we, have a, we have something of a trade war with China, partially from Trump and partially just kind of the nature of being economic rivals is the way that people look at it. But we apply very little pressure on their policies and things. A great example is look at Trump's concern with China. Trump was not concerned about the human atrocities being committed in China. Trump was concerned with the trade deficit. You know what I mean? He was talking about money. He was not talking about human atrocities, injustice, or anything like that. He was concerned with money. And time and time again, you look at America's foreign policy, and that's what America is concerned about is money. It's money, yeah. The argument that we're out there to protect the world is truly a fabrication is truly a fabrication. There's there's no justification for that if you look at our actions. Right. There would be a few periods. You could say that, uh, that under Reagan, were we deliberately trying to fight communism? Yes, in a lot of cases. I, I think a lot of the, you know, a lot of what we did during that time seemed to be. But why were we facing communism? It was not because communism was fundamentally bad. It was because communism was a tool that was being used by Russia, and Russia was the biggest threat, was the threat with nuclear weapons that were aimed at the United yes, States. Yes, and, and you'd say, why would and why were we in some countries and not others? Like, if you start looking at the battlegrounds we picked, the places that we decided to fight them covertly or overtly, and those choices were heavily hinged on economic issues as well. Absolutely. This is not meant to be a... No, no, that's fine. It'll speak for itself. Speak for itself. I'll say, if, if you were going to say it's not meant to be a condemnation of U.S. It foreign is. policy, then I disagree completely. This is, a, is condemnation a condemnation of, foreign, of yes. United States foreign policy. Yes. That United States foreign policy, both, you know, from both parties... Across a long throughout period history, of time. Throughout yeah, history, a occasion. long period of time, is fundamentally disgusting. Yeah that it is not based on moral principles, that moral principles are talked about, but it's not based on it. There's no true justification for the vast majority of the wars. Yeah, I, and I concur. North Korea is another one that makes news a lot. Russia, China, North Korea are the three boogeyman right now. Iran in there too occasionally. These are the, the people who, at any given moment, the military is practicing exercises to fight them in key locations or to even attack them as training, you know, standard training. And that's, and that's, that part makes a lot of sense. That's not a problem. 
you, if you're in the military and you're wondering what fights might we be in, you practice those fights. That's which, which makes mm-hmm. sense. You know, in North Korea, especially three or four years ago, when Trump first got elected, when it looked like we might do something about it, they were constantly practicing and doing war exercises uh, around North Korean scenarios. But one that we don't talk a lot about that doesn't get enough attention is Saudi Arabia. Given the limited time we have already, we've already gone so long this, we will have to revisit this topic and talk more about some of these details in the future. Yeah, and in many ways, this episode is an introduction to foreign policy. There are many aspects that, that we'll have to delve into at a later date. Yes, sure. more the moral issues that, that come up with because of nuclear war. And we could get into things like the, the morality of preemptive strikes. The idea that if I know that Brad is at his house loading his gun to come and kill me, do I need to wait for him to come and try it before I attack? And the answer is no. <laughs> the answer is no. But the question is, do we know? That's, that's where this is where it gets really hazy, is we often engage in military affairs across the world that we call preemptive strikes that are anything but preemptive. There was never any real threat from these people, any threat at all from these people, and yet we are striking. That can get really hazy. I think preemptive strikes are morally justifiable, but the question is, do you know? Yep, absolutely. But Saudi Arabia is a place in the, in the world that we should pay more attention to. Saudi Arabia is our ally, and if you had to say who primarily benefits from our involvement in the Middle East, it is almost always, and maybe always, Saudi Arabia. And the reason is because they are a true modern democracy <laughs> that shares our values, which is That's why right. they're our main That's ally. Right. Them and Israel are our two like-minded Middle Eastern countries, and we we support both, and it make <laughs> we support both, and it makes perfect sense. We jest, of course. If you know anything about Saudi Arabia, you know it's, a, it's an oppressive monarchy that still has public executions. The point of bringing Saudi Arabia up is because it's a demonstration of the fact that our foreign policy is not about being the policeman. It's not about spreading democracy and freedom throughout the world. It's about preserving American interests. And that's something that Saudi Arabia does. Saudi Arabia has a working economic relationship with the United States. And that is why <laughs> they're our allies. It has nothing to do with any moral and, principles. And that economic relationship is critical because we don't want to be dependent on Russia for oil. We'd prefer to be dependent on this monarchy in the Middle East. On this monarchy that we're able to control through our ability to help them defend themselves through our our sale of, of these modern weapons that they couldn't get otherwise. This is shocking to a lot of people. If you had to guess who spends the most money on the military in the world, and you don't guess the United States, I don't know what to tell you. The United States spends more money on military technology and weapons and things than any other country, and it is not close. We spend something like eight times the next closest country. I haven't checked in a while. Something like eight or nine times the second highest spender in the world. It's probably less than that now as China's economy has grown. And China, if you guessed, that's number two. You are correct. Now, almost everybody will at this point say, who is number three? Well, it's probably not the European countries because they're pretty small. Probably Russia. Russia would be number three. Now, numbers three, four, and five have shifted significantly in recent years. Saudi Arabia used to be number three. They used to be number three. They used to be above Russia. Which is Russia. crazy. 
and above countries like India, who has a massive population and massive economy, right? India, like China, is becoming one of the dominant economies in the world and will predictably by just sheer population if they can have a free enough economy for it to become productive at the at the scale it needs to they will surpass america india now is number 3 russia number 4 saudi arabia 5 but just a few years ago saudi arabia was spending more than russia and if you didn't realize that they had those kind of resources then you must not realize what how good it is to be close friends with the United States. And, and to have, have abundant, and to have natural, abundant resources. natural resources. Which is why they're friends with the United States. You know, it's a two sides of the same coin. Right. You want a easy way to solve massive amounts of evil in the world? The United States should open up all of its oil so that we don't have to go through places like Saudi Arabia and Venezuela. And as soon as you do that, right, Saudi Arabia's monarchy collapses. <laughs> Saudi Arabia depends on this. It's the only way it's able to remain a monarchy that does the kind of things it does in this day and age is because we take care of it. And, it's, and we take care of it because of the oil we right, rely on right. because we choose not to use our own. It is. It's really twisted when you think about it. It becomes this weird circle. It is, especially because we do it in the name of environmentalism, right? We, we, we let them do the work. Yeah, and it has to do with the, the twisted political scene in the United States. The United States isn't just acting for its own self-interest, it's acting for its own political interest. And political interest is different right. than self-interest, as you'll see time and time again. Right. So we export all kinds of things that are bad for the environment to countries that do it worse. <laughs> right. To countries that do it worse and then use the profits. Or we import. We export yeah, the we, work is what I was saying. Import. Yes. So we okay, allow, you're right, we import the oil, which means the work happens somewhere else where it's going to be done less efficiently with more pollution at greater expense. And the proceeds go to supporting some of the most tyrannical regimes in the world so that we can pretend <laughs> that we are keeping the environment clean. That we're environmentally friendly. Our relationship with Saudi Arabia is perhaps the most perverse relationship between any two countries in the world in terms of the lies it allows and the evil that it supports and sustains. Saudi Arabia is the place where most of the radical Islamic ideas come from. They're the people there write it and they spread it and they use that money to spread it through the Middle East. There are a number of the major issues come from there. Most of the people involved in 9-11 were Saudi Arabian. Like 19 of the 21. Some, I haven't looked at the numbers in a while, but it's, it's like 18 or 19 of the 21 individuals who actually did it were Saudi Arabian. Were actually from Saudi Arabia. That's crazy. It, there's all kinds of other sketchy things with Saudi Arabia that we could get into and start talking conspiracies that are probably true. But you don't have to even do that to be like, this is a terrible idea. Just look at the, the publicly available facts, and that's more than enough to show that... What America says about foreign policy and what America does are two completely different yes. things. To revisit our initial simple questions, what is our foreign policy? I leave that for you to answer. And by you, I don't mean Brad. <laughs> <laughs> we leave that for the audience to try and piece together. But you can see it in what's happening with Biden and the Russian sanctions. Biden campaigned on being anti-Russia. What that actually looks like in real life is about the same as if Biden said he was anti-Saudi Arabia. <laughs> it leads to superficial sanctions 
and him saying, now now the case is closed, we've solved the problem, and we're going to move on with our lives. In other words, nothing. Absolutely nothing. Because Biden understands that foreign policy is not about morals. It's not about justice. It's not even about whether or not Russia interfered with the election. It's about a combination of political and financial incentives that leave us making allies with some of the worst governments in the world and completely ignoring those many people who actually could use our help but were unwilling to even let them seek refuge here, which, like I said before, is something that Biden <laughs> yeah. campaigned on and yet was unwilling to do, which is just fascinating, which is just fascinating. It's just another demonstration of the fact that the differences between the political parties is, in this case, in in terms of foreign policy – are truly right. superficial. They they really are at this point. There maybe there was an important difference in the last twenty years. There hasn't been, and it probably goes back further than that. But in the last twenty years, for sure, there has been no important difference in opinion, despite some differences in rhetoric. Yeah, lots of differences in rhetoric, but an actual in what they actually do. More often than not, it comes out being the same. Yes. And this is a foreign policy, like many of these things, you need to look past what they're saying and look at what they do, because what they do will tell you a very different story. And again, this is an area where you have to realize that most of what you see in here on this subject is a show, and it's a show for you. They are selling the American citizen a story, and you are the consumer of this story in order to get votes. Yeah. This dance in foreign policy makes no sense until you realize that. <laughs> until you realize, as Brad was saying, all these interests, all these things they want that they're trying to get simultaneously, which requires them to spin this like this. That requires them to tell these stories and create these myths about our foreign policy. Yeah, it's just a giant fabrication in order to justify their own political agenda, which has to do with power and money, just like everything else. The one upside I would say on this issue is that there are private groups that are trying to help people in other countries, and if you find them and support them, that money is well spent. The right groups. I can think of one off the, the right top groups. of my head yes, that, uh, that goes in and helps kids in, in sex trafficking things, Operation Underground Railroad. Glenn Beck is often the one pushing it. I think he essentially funded the initial expeditions and has since been a major supporter of it and calling attention to it. There are other groups, uh, indefensive Christians will help. They're called indefensive Christians. They actually help much more than just Christians. Religious minorities who are being persecuted. Right, precisely, precisely. Religious minorities like these Muslims in this place. I don't know of their involvement in that particular case, but I'm sure you can find people who are doing things. But we do need a political change that gives them a place to go. Yeah. Again, it seems the solution would be easy. Let them come here, give them a work visa that's indefinite. Mm -hmm. It harms no one. It helps tons of people. Yeah. Allow for open immigration, vastly expand and simplify the refugee process. That would make a huge difference and allow these private organizations to flourish and to help a lot of people, period. Yes. These private organizations are capable of much more distinction and accountability than the U.S. military ever will be. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> Maybe you need, the, you need something on the scale of the U.S. military to defend us from actual attacks. But when what you need is a precise movement in another country to achieve extremely limited goals. That may not even be military. 
Yeah, that may not require soldiers and firepower even, but it may or may not. A private group can be much more effective. And they will tell you exactly what you're getting for your contribution, exactly what they can do with that money. Whereas once the U.S. military misplaced in their accounting, they couldn't find what they had done with like $2 trillion. <laughs> <laughs> like we've, um, we've done the math. We've run how we spent the money. And, we just can't uh, figure it somewhere out. Somewhere in there, there's several trillion dollars that have been misplaced. And on that note, this has been episode 38. Thank you for listening. You've just listened to episode 38 of the Rethinking Politics podcast. You can check us out on Facebook and Twitter. You can email us at rethinkingpoliticspodcast at gmail.com. Our website is rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com. And you can find our podcast on all the major podcast apps. Till next time.